guys, thanks so much for tuning in to The Stone Table. My name is Mickey, and I am so excited about today's episode because we got the chance to sit down with Mike Duran, the author of Christian Horror. Now, I know that sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but in his book, Mike gives us an in-depth look at horror themes in religion, religious themes in horror, and the sort of reasonable tension it causes in us as Christians in the face of the horror genre. Yeah, Mickey, I gotta be honest, I kind of love this guy's book and was more than a little bit obsessed with it. I know we had like a ton of conversations about it as we both read through it. And what Mike's not doing in the book is saying Christians need to be obsessed with or even particularly interested in this genre. But what he is saying is that if you do choose to view horror movies or read horror fiction, that there's some some themes that we can find there that coincide with some of the things that scripture teaches. And so I absolutely loved sitting down with Mike. You can tell that I'm just a total geek from, from the first question on. I just think it's fascinating. I think he has a lot of great stuff to say. And especially during this time of year where horror is pushed to the forefront of our culture, I think that you're going to find this interview really helpful as you think through what we're seeing in culture and in society during this season. So with that being said, I'm Travis. And I'm Mickey. And, and this, this is, is The Stone, Stone Table. Table. <laughs> So Mike, thank you for sitting down to talk with us about just a, a fascinating topic. And before we get into the 10,000 questions we both have, I think the most important question I want to ask you is of George A. Romero's original trilogy, Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead, which is the best? Oh, it's got to be the middle one, man. The Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was classic. I think that actually formed, there were so many spinoffs from that one as opposed to the first. You know, just right. because it integrated the mall and all the commentary, the social commentary type stuff. So yeah, I'd say the middle one for sure. You're already a man after my own heart. <laughs> and I, I might have a tear in my eye right now. <laughs> So we're, we're sitting down to talk about this topic of horror and how it relates to Christianity. And you are really just an accomplished author. I mean, you've written for the Gospel Coalition. You've written for Relief Journal. You are the only person I've ever talked to who's been interviewed by Rue Morgue. You are the only person to serve in ministry that I've ever met who knows what Rue Morgue is. And you've spent a long time thinking about the relationship between Christianity and horror as a whole, which is not something a lot of people take the time to consider. And many people I'm sure would say that Christian horror is a contradiction of terms, but you've quite literally written the book on it. So how did you start thinking about the relationship between the Christian faith and, and horror as a genre? Uh, probably when I started writing it. And that was a whole kind of adventure in itself because I was in the ministry and was in the ministry for a little over a decade. <clears throat> and then um, our church disbanded. It was a pretty awful time. And I had a lot of creative gifts that were kind of latent, you know, things that I'd worked on in the ministry. I mean, as a minister, you have to learn how to connect with people, tell stories, listen to stories. And um, so I was kind of bereft of my creativity at that point. It was the, it, when I was out of the ministry, there was nowhere to plug in uh, to, you know, that creative communicative outlet. And I just started writing. I had been a pretty avid reader, uh, you know, a fan of pop culture stuff. 
So I started writing, and what I gravitated to was speculative fiction. Hmm. Speculative fiction is kind of an umbrella term for uh, science fiction, uh, dark fantasy, surrealism, things like that, and horror. It's when I began writing and interacting with other <clears throat> Christian authors that I began to notice this uh, deep apprehension towards uh, dark things in fiction. And as you probably know, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the Christian fiction bookshelves are just lined with romance and Amish fiction, just yeah, dominate yeah. the palette there. Speculative fiction is kind of the oddball, you know, they're, they're the odd guy out in relation to fiction. And it just caused me to wonder a lot about that. And it wasn't until my first book was published, which is, uh, was The Resurrection. And that's when I began to hear a lot of controversy about, for instance, there's a demon slash ghost character in that book. Well, aren't ghosts demons? And can a Christian book have a ghost? And aren't ghosts anathema? And what about all this occultism stuff? And, and at that point, the Christian fiction publishers, they would label horror as uh, supernatural suspense or something like that, but they just did not want to use the term horror. And that's kind of when I began to realize that there's a lot of stigma attached to the genre in, you know, current evangelical publishing and the church. That's true. And I, I can tell because we're doing this interview over the video that you've got the Boris Karloff, the mummy poster <laughs> in the back and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Can I ask, before you even started writing horror, were you a fan of the genre overall or? Is it something you kind of tripped into? Yeah, I was. And part of it was kind of a, a default because um, I wasn't really raised a Christian. I was raised a Catholic. And there was a lot of mysticism, frankly, in my uh, background. Hmm. During one, um, one birthday, I received a Ouija board from one of my Catholic oh my God. Uh, relatives. <laughs> in fact, intense. she went... She went so far as to show us how to summon holy ghosts with the Ouija board. Holy and cow. so it, I ended up getting into like strains of occultism and psychedelic experimentation when I was a teenager. Uh, we had a friend who was a warlock in high school. And there was a lot of real dark rabbit trails that I followed in my teen years. And so there was kind of this synthesis or this blending of being a fan of horror and uh, the supernatural and the numinous and then real life things that were going on that were really dark in my life. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag in that sense. Hmm. Um, so even before you were a Christian, the genre of horror was something you found yourself drawn to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it was the interest in spiritual things and supernatural things was always a big draw in my life. And it's interesting because I think just recently, I think it was 2017 or 18 that uh, the box office uh, record showed that, you know, like it, it was like the biggest uh, selling horror movie of all time. And it's just interesting. It's fascinating to see how the horror genre continues to have this hold on, on the masses psyche. And part of it is, I think, what drew me to that. And that is this fascination with 
spiritual things, this draw towards spiritual things. Uh, we just don't all have a, uh, I guess, the proper parameters to discern what's true and false, like I didn't when I was a kid. But so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, always interested in that subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the genre of horror, it's a little hard to nail down because it's a pretty broad definition. And But in your opinion, what defines something as horrific? Wow, that could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be physical trauma in the pure sense, detached from any occultism or spiritual things. But it could also be the surreal, the ethereal. I was thinking the other day about C.S. Lewis using the, the idea, and I, he was explaining uh, the concept of the numinous, mm. but the idea that the fear of a tiger in the next room is a totally different fear than the fear of a ghost in the next room. And so I think, in a sense, the horrific then, there's horrific that is the horror that's brought on by the tiger. Mm-hmm. And there's this other kind of horror, this horror of something intangible, this ghostly horror, this fear of the dark or this fear of the unknown right. type of thing. So that's a big question that I'm not sure <laughs> I have a good answer for, but I'm sure there's many different uh, iterations of what would be considered horrific for someone. Hmm. Well, one of the things we appreciated about your book is that you you drew out some of the different themes in horror and even some things that we don't naturally think are horror related. So something like dystopian fiction, where most people don't see that as a horror story. Uh, but then you look at something like The Hunger Games or Terminator, these movies that are not going to get write-ups in horror movie magazines, but but they include something horrific about the world. So the genre, it seems maybe broader than what we would expect. Right. Yeah, and well, heck, a lot of the zombie films are dystopian. And so there is that integration of the zombie uh, metaphor, the zombie archetype, and then the end of the world scenario too. But I think that, you know, the dystopian concept too is one of those uh, odd intersections between a biblical worldview and pop culture. Somehow in our psyche, you know, our collective psyche, we realize that things are probably not going to end really good for the human race. You know, we have this kind of latent fear, whether we press it down through our entertainments or what, but we have this latent fear that the world and humanity is dreadfully ill and is falling apart fast, you know, so that's, that's, you know, a biblical theme. We're studying the book of revelations in our church right now. And it's just fascinating to see the the horror themes, Mm. the horror themes that you find in the book of revelation. I mean, there's some scary stuff. Oh yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We've, we've had conversations about that and, and we could spend hours just talking about those things and what it means. And, but particularly with the dystopian uh, theme, for example, how your book is talking about how the biblical truth that we can draw from that, that when man is left to their own device, we fail. So our need for 
for the Lord, for Christ is, is inevitable. And that's something that does cross over with pop culture when we do see films and, and read stories about dystopia and things like that, that you are just, you're able to see that biblical truth being drawn out. Yeah. And, and that seems like one of those fundamental elements that a Christian writer or a Christian creative wants to communicate is that man is uh, inexplicably broken and he can't fix himself. You know, a lot of more humanistic, you know, iterations of, of the dystopian genre would have technology being the savior. Mm -hmm. But in the biblical paradigm, I mean, technology is just a tool of a broken, you know, people and stuff. So I think that would be the difference too. in in the biblical remedy is that we can't fix ourselves and neither can science or medicine or politics or any of that stuff. Mm. You know, we, we need a savior. Mm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the Bible because I know, well, I'll, I'll just say this. So when I was in college, I grew in sort of an obsession with scary movies I'd always liked scary movies when I was a kid. I'd grown up watching the the Hammer horror films like The Curse of Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. But in college, I, I came to be more interested in the genre and I felt this tension for me because I felt like there was something there of value, whether it's scary stories, scary movies. But I also came up against passages like Psalm 11 that talks about God hating those who love violence. And so I felt this, this tug in my heart of like, okay, I like this genre and I think it might, it might have something of value to say for me as a Christian. At the same time, how do I approach it in a way that's not, that's not violating what scripture calls me to? So for you as, as a former pastor and a Christian author, how do you wrestle with that? How do, how do you think through horror as a genre and how it relates to us as Christians? Yeah, there's, uh, I think that uh, Christian Horror, the book, I think one of my last chapters is on uh, objections because mm -hmm. there's so many objections. And frankly, I take the position that there's a lot of good objections against mm -hmm. horror. Yeah. I'm not going to be an apologist that everybody, every Christian has to watch horror, or if you don't, you're a weaker brother or a weaker sister. I'm not sure I'd go there, you know? I think there's good reasons. You brought up like violence and stuff. I think there's a big difference, Travis, between seeing violence, uh, watching violence, being a part of something violent or engaging in it, and enjoying that or getting some kind of pleasure out of that. Mm. I mean, I think uh, I have never understood, I personally don't like slasher and gore movies that much. And mm -hmm. I am disturbed <laughs> by the person who gets uh, unique pleasure watching even fake disembowelments or beheadings. Now, sometimes a beheading is a necessary judgment upon evil. Let's say, let's put Goliath's head. Mm -hmm. Let's put Goliath's head there. And the young shepherd boy holding up the giant's head saying, God wins, you know. That's a messy affair, you know? So are beheadings ugly to watch? Absolutely. Should we revel in beheadings? Uh, maybe it depends on whose head it is. I don't know. <laughs> you know, right. so anyway, I'd say there's a fine line there between 
seeing something, watching something, reading something that contains occultism and embracing that or condoning that. Same with violence and gore. You know, my son, one of my sons uh, works in the emergency room mm. of a local hospital. Dude, the stories that he comes back with. The fact is, is that, you know, most of us are going to see some of the things that he sees and we're going to turn away and disgust. He's not reveling in them. In fact, he needs to learn to look past the gore to save the person there. And there's a real sense that sometimes looking at the gore, looking it straight in the face, is what the Christian has to do. We're not reveling in it, but we are realizing that darkness is real, it has a face, and sometimes you need to stare it down. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And go, even going back to talking about what makes something horrific, you talked about the supernatural elements. You talked about the, the horror of, of trauma and violence. And then you mentioned the, the story of David and Goliath. And you have all of these things that maybe characterize horror stories in our modern day and age. All of these themes are present in scripture. In many ways, if scripture were were made into a film, it probably wouldn't be sold in most Christian bookstores. <laughs> it definitely would not, it would not get uh, movie spots on Christian radio or anything like that. And so I, I just wonder for Christians, especially now, we're, we're so afraid of some of the things that are in the horrific. And yet I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that we don't actually read our Bibles to see how much our Bibles deal with those things. I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Well, the, I find the whole idea that, that the Bible's family-friendly and that Christian fare should be family-friendly is, is kind of disturbing. And again, I have, you know, I have 11 grandkids, man. And it's like, <laughs> I understand that you, know, you, you can't show kids everything. You, can't, you don't teach right off the worst uh, parts of the scripture. You, know, you want to get them the good, solid, foundational elements uh, let them develop on that. But this idea that scripture and that Christian art should be light and bright and positive and hopeful, I don't, I'm not sure that that's always, always the case. You know, for a while, uh, you remember Thomas Kincaid, you know, mm -hmm. the painter of light. Right. And there's definitely, obviously, there's definitely um, images of light and hope and, and uh, redemption in the scripture, for sure. But the Bible isn't a portrait of light all the time, you know, and that's really what troubles me a lot about so much Christian fare right now. Like I said, Christian books. Why is it that Amish fiction and woman's fiction has come to define Christian fiction? Mm. You know, this is a cultural dynamic that is really worth Christians thinking deeply about. Why have we migrated to, you know, why is it that we have banished from our conscience and banished from our eyes and stuff, these, um, you know, darker, more complex, disturbing images, especially when the Bible contains plenty of them. Right. And so as we're talking about scripture and how it relates to this theme, most Christians, or a lot of them will often point to Philippians 4, 8, 
when horror movies come up and they ask the question, why should we look at all this ugliness? What is something that you would say to them? Uh, I'd say there's, <clears throat> there's definitely a good reason to object. The person that focuses their mind constantly on dark images is potentially going to have problems. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't stay focused on, uh, I mean, the book of Revelation is a good example, is there's plenty of dark stuff in there, but ultimately there's a sea of glass before a throne, before redeemed masses who are singing a new song, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> I would say the Philippians 4 argument is a worthwhile argument considering. You know, the person who is obsessed with darkness and horror should think about should think about that. They should think about that and why that is. On the other hand, that scripture, Philippians 4, talks about focusing our minds on what's true also. And what's true can sometimes be very disturbing. It was uh, the old Japanese filmmaker, Akira Kurosawa. Mm, Seven Samurai. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, the role of the artist is to not look away. The role of the artist is to not look away. And I think that's part of Philippians, uh, the Philippians quote as well, is that our role is to think about what's true. And sometimes what's true is a hard and bitter pill. You know, sometimes what's true is a terrible, uh, horrific vision or, or a theme and stuff, you know, that's a more complex verse to unpack. You can't just say one way or the other, no, I can watch, uh, I can watch horror and there's no problems. Or on the other hand, you can just say, no, you can't watch horror. I think that there's a, a reasonable tension uh, in that scheme. And I think that's a helpful thing to consider too, because that very rarely the whatever is true part is brought out in that passage. And yet what the Bible says is true is that we live in a world that is inconceivably broken by sin. And we live in a world that has been devastated by the results of the fall. And we live in a world in which we wrestle against powers and principalities and the demonic. And so there's a sense in which all of these things are horrific. And for Christians in their art to talk about what's true, we have to talk about those things. And yet most Christians are afraid to for fear of, for fear of delving too far into the darkness. But sometimes that results in Christian art seeming to be out of touch with reality in some yeah. ways and out of touch with how dark the world actually is because of sin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we, uh, by avoiding uh, dark art, let's put it that way, dark or uh, you know, more horrific, uh, scary things, we actually are taking a tool out of our uh, evangelistic arsenal, so to speak. In other words, Jesus did uh, a lot of the stories that Jesus told, they were ambiguous and they contain some crazy, scary imagery too. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, yeah. that, that doesn't <laughs> end intense. good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that would make the Lifetime channel or <laughs> a good Christian movie. It's like the final scene is the rich man in the torments of hell saying, let me go tell my brothers so they don't come here. And I mean, then it's like, then the credits roll, the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's no post credit scene. It's, <laughs> it's not a Marvel movie. Yeah. And so, you know, I wonder if when we take uh, that out of our evangelistic arsenal, let's put it that way, 
I wonder that we're uh, we're neutering, you know, a, a storytelling technique that's very important. You know, sometimes showing the damned is a redemptive thing. Mm. Redemptive. Uh, I was thinking about um, the story about Peter Hitchens, the uh, brother of Christopher Hitchens. And part of his uh, coming back to Christ and returning to religion uh, was when he viewed, uh, it's that triptych painting, the uh, the huge altarpiece by Van der Weyden, I believe his yes. name was. Mm. And it's called The Last Judgment, this huge old altarpiece. And it has a picture of Christ on the throne. And I think there's saints. And down along the bottom are these fleeing naked figures who are running in horror from the Holy God. And Peter Hitchens talks about how when he viewed that painting, he was gobsmacked by these fleeing naked sinners who were running from a Holy God. And that was a turning point for him. He said he ended up returning to Christ. And in other words, he was, he got the hell scared out of him. Yeah. Literally. And I, and I wonder sometimes if when we remove that, if our paintings are just Christ on the throne and not the naked sinners running from him, if we're actually removing a very powerful element of the truth uh, in our storytelling and in our art, you know? Yeah. You mentioned a couple different pieces of art and it was funny as we were reading the book, we just kept Googling all, all the pictures you mentioned because yeah, I'm not an expert in medieval art by any means. But yeah. Yeah. We, we were super interested in those portraits and, and then you mentioned in the book, the, the theme of medieval art a lot. And when you look at the timeline of the art that was put out, Christians weren't always afraid of depicting the demonic and even the violent things that are horrific. But we see that as something worldly. So we as Christians, how did we get here now where we're afraid to look, we're afraid to think of those things? That's a, that's a tough one. I've, I've wondered about that myself. Um, you know, it, it probably has something to do with evangelical culture now and how it's linked more towards a fundamentalist or puritanical roots where, <clears throat> so for instance, they would have a list of thou shalt not, you know, don't, uh, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't go to the movies, you can't No this. cards. <laughs> no cards. <laughs> yeah. So there's, uh, I think that there's probably a lot of threads of that still in our congregational psyches that you know, we have to avoid these things. We have to avoid this and we have to avoid that. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, in fact, I was in working on a, like an essay regarding this, but <clears throat> the whole idea of, I'm going to mess this word up, but uh, iconoclasm. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that it? And yeah. So that the, uh, you know, how the reformers had this period where they just started going into churches and destroying art because they believed that the images themselves were kind of, were sacrilegious, that we shouldn't have any idols before us and stuff. So uh, art, architecture, they believe stained, stained glass windows, anything ornamental in a church was kind of idolatry. And so there was this period of time where the church just, they just swept through and started destroying things. And I think we imbue images with that kind of regard now 
for instance, a skull. That's eaten. You know, our church says when we have our trunk or treat thing for Halloween, no skulls. Mm. And it's like, dang it, man, because I've got so many skulls. <laughs> <and> I'm, I'm <laughs> a big skull guy. But for some reason, we've made yeah. this skull now for the image of the skull is somehow dark, evil, don't look upon it or something. And so I think in a way we've imbued objects and images with more of a power than they should have. Mm. I think maybe I'm thinking that the apostle Paul was kind of treading on that ground when he was talking about the, the meat sacrifice to idols Mm. is that here you have an idol that actually was sacrificed to a false God, you know, meat was sacrificed to this, this false God, this idol. And Paul's saying, Hey, if your conscience is clean, it's like, Hey, go ahead and eat it. The meat in of itself is not bad. And I think that there's kind of that argument going along in here. In other words, it is challenging. I know you trace it a little bit in your book through the fundamentalist movement, uh, but it's challenging to, I guess, to pinpoint when we started to become less comfortable depicting things like that. But the thing that I was thinking about as I was reading is C.S. Lewis talking about the two great tricks that Satan has played is as one, getting us to think too much about him and two, getting us to not think about him at all. Right. And I think most modern evangelicals are in the second category right now. For fear of thinking too much, we don't think at all and we avoid anything that might bring the the darkness and the fallenness of the world to our minds. Yeah, that seems, uh, I'm wondering if that's actually part of, you know, postmodernism in general, where, you know, we've deconstructed everything down now to the point where our churches are becoming more or less materialists, you mm-hmm. know, we don't believe God can do miracles anymore. We don't believe, man, the spiritual dimension. Yeah, there's angels out there, but they never show up anymore. You know what I mean? And we've really become materialistic in our worldview. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about a maybe a classic horror movie that I I just found your your treatment of it in the book so fascinating. So The Exorcist is considered by many to be one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And I thought it was so interesting in reading your book that both the director and the author of the book that it's based yeah. on considered it a, a Christian movie. So much so that there's a, a government, a Tunisia, I think I'm saying the name of the country, right? It's a Muslim country, and they banned The Exorcist because it was Christian propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that great. blew my mind. Yeah. I thought that was so surprising because, because most Christians think of The Exorcist as demonic propaganda. And yet from non-Christians looking at it, they said, this is propaganda for Christianity. It's, I think the exorcist is probably a good example of how, I think that um, uh, exorcism movies have continued to maintain this huge popularity. And the problem with that for the, from the secularist perspective is that you actually have to portray uh, a spiritual dimension with objectively evil personages inhabiting it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's like a, a shot across the bow of the secular uh, movie maker to do a an exorcism film. You know, one of the real powerful exorcism films I thought too was uh, Scott Derrickson's um, The Exorcism, Emily Rose. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I have, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty powerful too, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you you mentioned the sort of the secular culture that we're in. 
there is something about supernatural stories that rattle people's they rattle people's cage. They rattle sort of the materialist cage. I can think of a, a recent movie that came out, and I had a friend who liked scary movies, and it was a supernatural movie dealt with ghosts and demons, and I suggested that he watch it. And I saw him the next day, and he looked like he hadn't slept, like his eyes were <laughs> sunken in. And I said, I guess you watched it. And he said, yeah. And I said, what did you think? And he goes, that was the scariest thing I've ever seen. And then he stopped, and he said, does the Bible talk about things like that? Oh, interesting. And I said, yeah, I I mean, actually it does. I mean, it deals with the supernatural. And and it became this bridge to a conversation about spiritual warfare and biblical things because this particular film was enough to rattle him out of his mundane day-to-day life and point his eyes towards the fact that the world is more than just matter. Yeah, absolutely. That's the Peter Hitchens effect, I guess. You know, it's like <laughs> scare them into heaven or something. I don't know. But yeah, you're right. I mean, just being a springboard to talk about uh, spiritual things. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And with all the movies coming out recently, uh, we live in an interesting period where horror is sort of dominating the box office. I know we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about a couple of years ago, it was the best selling movie. And Mm -hmm. so with part one and part two, Hereditary, The Witch, all those movies, uh, what do you think that this might say about our culture? I think it goes back to the whole Romans one, two, and three uh, picture that uh, God's made himself known and his law is just buried in our conscience. And no matter what we try to do, it's just really hard to suppress that. We are spiritual beings. And we're going to continue to, if not seek out something blatantly spiritual, find something to fill that hole inside of us. So, you know, I think that horror movies continue to to echo or to reveal like, you know, our fallen natures and our desire, our hunger for something more. But also fear. Fear is a fascinating element in this. You know, I've, I've never really figured out why people would want to make themselves be afraid. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, yeah, does it? It doesn't feel very good. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it does seem like there's some truth. I know that uh, a lot of people say that there's kind of a, it's kind of therapeutic to deal with the fact that all of us have insecurities. We have deep fears. We fear the unknown. We fear the afterlife. And there really is some truth to the fact that there's kind of a catharsis that <laughs> that goes on in horror where I can I can face a fear and face it down and fight it and hopefully beat that monster at some point. So yeah, it's it's crazy to see horror continue to to just grow and grow. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Mike Duran. Now, Mike was kind enough to send us a few copies of his book to give away, so stay tuned for details about how you can win a copy of Christian Horror. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor, rate, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. For Baylife Church, I'm Travis, and this is The Stone Table.
with that being said, I'm Travis. And I'm Mickey. And this is The Stone Table. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I want to say it at the same time. I want to try to see how that do you, is. Do you? Yeah. Okay. okay. I feel like that'll be fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's try. Okay. So with that being said, I'm Travis. And I'm Mickey. And, and this, this is, is The Stone, Stone Table. Table. Sounds too cheery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe never. How about, uh, this time do it, but do it, um, Not smiling, not laughing. Yeah, not smiling. Very serious. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. This, this is the stone table. So with that being said, I'm Travis. And I'm Mickey. And, and this, this is, is the, the stone, stone table. <laughs> Travis. <laughs> <laughs> we should put that in there. I don't know if we have the copyrights to it, but yeah. you should totally. <laughs> yeah. You should totally put that in as the intro. <laughs> okay.